The CEO Roundtable brings together operations professionals at the top of their game to define and explore what it means to be highly effective in a scale-up organization. And what sits at the heart of it is highly curated peer-to-peer roundtables where CEOs talk about things that matter. I absolutely love my roundtable. We've been together for about two years, and without exaggeration, I have made friends for life. To find out more, go to coroundtable.com. That's coroundtable.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Operations Room, a podcast for COOs. I am Brandon Mensinga, joined by my amazing co-host, Bethany Ayers. How are things going, Bethany? They're going well, Brandon. I had a bit of good news this week. My birthday's coming up in a couple months. And I was like, am I really going to be 48? Like, I'm 47 now, so I guess I'm going to be 48. But wow, it just doesn't feel quite right. And so I calculated in my, in my head, and I was like, no, I think I'm... 46. And then I couldn't quite believe it. And so then I had to take out my calculator and actually calculate the date. And it came out at 46. <laughs> for some reason, for the entire year, I thought I'm 47. And anytime people ask me, I'm like, oh, no, 47. And so I've just gained a year. Nice. Oh, my goodness. That's tremendous. I, I hear you on this because I had exactly the same thing happen to me. It all becomes a, a blur somehow. You don't care so much about it, and then the numbers start getting higher, and you lose the plot. It's all very confusing at some point. All right, let's move on. So today, we have a timeless classic, which is, how does a CEO work best with a CEO? Our special guest is Scott Gelman, the CEO of Nausta, and we'll get to him in a few minutes. But I guess what I wanted to start with, Bethany, was this question. I think we have a lot of opinions on this in terms of how a CEO works best with a CEO. And to kick us off here, maybe just a very simple, straightforward question that actually can get quite complicated, which is how do you and the CEO stay in sync? How do we stay in sync and not have it take up all of your time, maybe? What worked really well for me and the CEO I was working with is we had a Google Doc that was just a live shared doc between the two of us. And we wrote down all kinds of topics. It was a to-do list, worry list, woke up in the middle of the night with an amazing idea kind of list. And then come Friday afternoon when we had our one-to-one, we would use that as the basis of the conversation. But it was also really interesting was how many things came off the list before the Friday. That seems like a very wise way to do it. Because in in real time, you can put down day-to-day what you're concerned about and some of the issues you want to get to in terms of talking to the CEO. And to your point, you actually save time in a way because by the time you finish the week, some of the stuff becomes non-issues effectively. And that seems like a very sensible way to to parse down the list to something more helpful. Definitely. And also sometimes either it's a non-issue or you can handle it asynchronously because it's not very exciting. And so you can save more interesting things like need you to sign a bunch of things here is the link to sign all these things. I feel like you very much, or I have really accommodated the CEO style because different CEOs have different preferences, I would say, in terms of how they want to communicate. And I think the one that you just suggested was probably the way that the CEO wanted to communicate with you. The CEOs that I've worked with in the past, almost exclusively, I would say, were very much had the impulse and wanted to talk to me on a daily basis, which is either at the end of the day, we would blow some steam, have a bit of a chat around just what happened that day and how we're feeling about things, or the walk around the block uh, coffee chat, which again, is more stream of consciousness. Let's go for a walk and just have a bit of a chat around whatever the case might be. A meeting's finished. 
they just wanted to have a, a chat around the outcome of that particular meeting or something that you know was highlighted to them that they thought was quite relevant for us to to speak about. But almost exclusively, everything was done in a ad hoc fashion. And yes, we had a staple meeting once a week that we definitely kept for the most part. But I think really the communications, if I think about it more realistically, it was all this other columns, I would say, that really was the the foundation of our relationship in terms of how we synced with each other. It's interesting in that you've pretty much always been in the same city and in the office with the CEO. and. For whatever reason, in the course of my career, it's never been the case. Like I've always had CEOs in different cities or offices in different cities. And so the ad hoc phone call, yes, but not as much of the ad hoc face-to-face. And it's just no takeaway from that. But I just find it interesting when you talk about things, you tend to rely more on in-person relationship building than I do. And I just think it's a function of how we've worked. No, that's a great point. I've had the luxury of having the face-to-face opportunity, I guess, in this way. It also occurs to me, as you're just saying that, that the way in which I stay in sync with my team that I do over Zoom, I very much do almost the exact same thing that you would do face-to-face in a way, which is all ad hoc, get on a Zoom call with person A, and then person A, I want to get talk to person B, but it's in relation to person A, so I'll bring person B onto the same call. We'll have a quick chat about that. Person A will leave, and I'll continue talking with person B in this case, and I'll literally just do like this ad hoc chat that I would do in a room basically, but I I do it on Zoom instead. And I do it not randomly, but based on needs that I have to talk to various folks. So why don't we uh, take a look at the next key thought here, which is, do you have any advice on how to say no constructively to the CEO? Yes, I don't. Part of that is maybe a bit of a tactic, but more than that is generally, and again, I'm using he because I have never worked with a female CEO, not many people have, is generally have trust that he would like to do things for a good reason. And so through asking questions and looking to understand what those reasons are, it will either help me understand why it's more important than something else or help him understand why it's less important than something else or now is not the right time. Yeah, that sounds like a very sensible way to do it. And I think I'm actually quite similar, to be honest, which is the bottom line is the CEO never wants to hear no. And they may not admit it, but it's the reality, I think, to be honest. And I think your response is the right one, which is I think the sensible thing to do is to ask insightful, smart questions in a very neutral way. And then if it's appropriate to really share your view directly, which is to say, look, here's my view. This is why I think it's a bad idea, which is A, B, and C, and leave it at that. Ultimately, in the relationship dynamic that you have, they're ultimately the decider. And I'm very happy to go with that decision as that person makes it. But equally, it's important to me to ensure and that they respect as well. And they're happy to receive my viewpoint in terms of whatever it might be in this case. And they take it for what it is and they take it on as guidance, whether they accept it or not is perhaps less important in some ways. But That's the kind of relationship that I think is healthy and constructive between the CEO and CEO. Question number three. So we have, how do you approach who does what between yourself and the CEO and any lessons learned there or any kind of review check-ins that you tend to do? This one worked out so well. And it was just one of those moments that happened spontaneously. It wasn't a plan. I hadn't read it in a book, but basically we both just wrote out everything that we did 
and particularly everything that we did that we absolutely hated, like the energy draining stuff that you hate going to work for. And then looking at the lists, we were able to swap things out really easily. And it was like, oh, I quite like setting up the cadences, let's say, for example, or you have scheduling. I'm all about scheduling, but I don't really love reporting very much. And he's like, oh, I love reporting. Like, give me a chart any day. I like reading reports. I just don't really care about setting them all up. I find it a bit boring. So anyhow, we just divvied it all up. And then there was only like a handful of things that we both hated. And then we just had to share those. And it happened spontaneously at work, but it's actually something that I also did with my husband about 10 years ago. And it has transformed our marriage because like making lunch for the kids during the school week, I hated it more than anything. It would destroy my entire morning having to make lunches. My husband's like, what's such a big deal about lunch? Lunch is easy. And I was like, okay, you do it now. And he just did for seven years. It was awesome. Did he know he was signing up for a seven-year commitment in that case? Well, I mean, he knew how old our children were and how long primary school lasted. So yes, <laughs> like I'm hoping he figured that out himself. But conversely, like he hates admin, like filling in any form just kills his soul. And I love filling in forms. So it really worked out well. Okay. So I think thematically, this kind of connects back to your previous list. So I think having some kind of binding list seems to be a good riff for you, I guess, in terms of how to split the activities between yourself and your husband and also yourself and the CEO in this case. In my case, I feel like I've done it a little more organically. I mean, generally speaking, I know what the CEO is good at, what they're interested in. And for the most part, I wrap myself around that. So ebbing and flowing in terms of what they want to do, what they're interested in, what they have capacity for, letting them flex their muscle in that sense. And then I kind of wrap around that in terms of what else needs to be done, essentially. And in areas where there is an overlap or an overlap starts to occur, I usually would just back off and allow the C in that case to pick it up. And it's a much more organic thing. I think sometimes I have brought it up in conversation if there is a lack of clarity on my part for whatever reason. But for the most part, it's a bit of a, a natural organic ebb and flow in this case. There's a real theme coming up. Like I need everything scheduled. I have everybody in my calendar. There's no just ad hoc Zoom calls. You're ad hoc Zooming people. You're <laughs> ebbing and flowing. Last question. So it can be a difficult and tough relationship at times between the CEO and the CEO. And the question is, who's really responsible for that relationship and really maintaining that relationship? So I think this is a really interesting one that I'd love to hear your perspective on because I do wonder how much gender comes into play and how much is the role of the COO and then how much is the role of a CEO and being a woman to a CEO who's a man. And you do to some extent, like with your ebbing and flowing and working around the CEO, I feel like I do a lot of making men the best versions of themselves as a lot of my career. And that's not just helping facilitate their vision becoming reality, but there's also like a lot of emotional labor. I support them through crises of confidence. I support them through things going on at home. I make them feel a little bit less lonely because it is a very lonely job. And I end up becoming a lot of a confidant. And I wonder if it's a gendered thing or a role thing or just a personality thing. Yeah, it's hard to know, isn't it? I feel like my relationships have always been, you're right. I think there might be a bit of a gender thing in some respects. I've only worked with men CEOs in this case, but it's always been this classic, not really talking a lot about your feelings towards what's happening and so on, as opposed, and especially personal things of note, which I think for sure 
never comes up, I would say, in my relationship with the CEOs. We don't talk about that part of it. But the characteristic that I provide to the CEO in this case, and I've been called this probably, I think, more than a dozen times in my career, which is a characteristic of it being unflappable, which is when shit hit the fans and things are not going well, I'm very focused and very on point and very targeted in terms of how to think about it, what the next step is, and really backbenching the company in a lot of respects. And also, in particular, the CEO, when the CEO is either discombobulated, unhappy about something, or whatever the case might be. And I'm really that unflappable individual they can speak to to really pause for a second. Let's think about this in a different way. Let's do X, Y, and Z. And I think that's really the relationship and the appreciation that they have in that respect where I can help them think through almost logically what is the next step without us and the company losing our minds as to whatever's happening. It's interesting because I think I also can help on the logical thinking through the next step, but I'm first there to help get to the point of being able to speak logically, (laughs) like to work through the emotional part. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. Actually, that's an interesting point. Because maybe I'm like one half of your equation, because the other half, I know for sure, the people person usually picks up that part of it. It's almost like a part that I'm not interested in, I guess, in some ways. Maybe I'm not interested, but I'm also not very good at it. And it doesn't come naturally to me either. And I think the people persons I've worked with in the past tend to be quite good at that. And they take on that burden almost in a way that I don't. Maybe that's to my detriment. And are they women? Yeah. I mean, usually the people person is a woman in this case as well. So yeah, maybe you're right there. Maybe there is like a real genderizing situation going on here. So why don't we park it there and move on to our conversation with Mr. Scott Gelman? And let's do that. I'm delighted to welcome Scott Gelman to the podcast today. I've known Scott for quite a few years now, but actually I've never met him in real life. It's one of those COVID relationships. Scott has been both a CFO and a COO of multiple startups and even big companies. So welcome, Scott. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Today we're talking about relationships with CEOs. And I was curious if there was any difference having been both a CFO and then a CFO who became a COO and also just a straight out COO between those relationships and your CEO? How does it differ? I think the biggest difference between the two roles is the CFO is very clearly defined. You know what you are absolutely responsible for on a day-to-day basis as the CFO. As the COO, I think It is very similar to being an ER doctor. You're trying to figure out where the biggest problem and pain point is within the company. And it doesn't matter if it reports into you or if it doesn't, you need to make sure that you're able to mend the pet patient, take care of the patient, and then move on to the next one. Yep. Without pissing everybody else off, or maybe you do. I've always found that difficult of when are you stepping on toes and when are you not? Yeah, I mean, and that's the interesting and probably the most complicated part about that is navigating the relationships and working cross-functionally to figure out, are you stepping on somebody else's turf and how are they going to actually respond to you helping them when you really are, you've got good intent, you want the company to do the right things. And you are ultimately responsible for making sure that the company is headed in the right direction, at least as the COO. I think the CFO is a very different role in the fact that many people call it the CFO. Like, 
expect that from the CFO. You expect the CFO to be hard. You expect the CFO to be very disciplined. There is a box that you operate in. And I think like the dichotomy between the two uh, makes it very interesting as you transition between the roles, because I think all great operators leverage the data to make decisions. When you're using data to make decisions, then it's really like difficult for people to argue with the data. They can try, but you're taking the emotion. And I think that that's what's super helpful about having like the CFO background is to be able to leverage the data as you transition into managing both being CFO and COO. There is the point where you have to be that black box where you're saying no, but the operational side of you realizes that you've got to make necessary investments. And so you've got this tension between the two roles. And I think for a lot of successful organizations, that's also why they separate out the two roles. When you think about your relationship that you've had as CFO with the CEO and the relationship you've had with the CEO as a COO, how has that been different or how has that felt different to you, given what you just said? I think it depends on the CEO. Operating in an early stage company, you're working with a lot of first-time CEOs that just haven't seen it. They have their own perception about what the role is, and it might not be necessarily relevant to what you're doing and what the stage of the company is. So I think I bring it back to the same idea and the premise, regardless of role, like having just a fundamentally great relationship with the CEO dictates success in both roles. I think that that is fundamentally critical. Number one, I think number two is definitionally what that role is. Once again, like most people know what a CFO is responsible for. A CFO is responsible for making sure that you've got enough cash, making sure that you've got the analytics to run the business. They've got all the reporting to distribute. From a COO perspective, there is no one COO role. There are COOs that are really good at GTM. There are COOs that are the MacGyvers of company operations. And then there are COOs that are really just administrators. And so I think that navigating that and having that common understanding with the CEO is really important and ensuring that you've got very clear expectations with the CEO as far as the COO role goes. I think that it's much easier to operate as a CFO of a company because of that common understanding. Bethany, did you ever have that challenge? Yes. And also, like, I always feel like, for me, being a COO is like having a second marriage. And you have to work on the marriage with the CEO as much as, like, marriage to my husband. Because it's not like you go in, form expectations, agree the rules, and they never change. It's like things always change because people change and the relationship changes and you have to go back. And at least my experience, both as COO and previously at New Voice Media, where I was just kind of, I think I was probably chief of staff, but it was just before the, it existed as a title. So I ended up being SVP strategy, but really I was chief of staff. 
And I had that same relationship with the CEO where I had to spend all my time negotiating this relationship and working on it. And I'm wondering, I feel like I was the one who did more of the work on the relationship and owned it. And I feel it's quite gendered, but maybe I'm just reading into it gender and it's actually the role of the COO to work more on it with the CEO. So Scott, I think you've only worked with male CEOs. I'm curious who put more effort into the relationship. I have definitely put more effort into the relationship of building that partnership for a variety of reasons, but it could be gender-based. I've just never thought about it. I think that like that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I would love to work with a female CEO to understand kind of like the difference, but I think like relationship building is just core and fundamental. I know that this is a tangent and this may feel, make you feel better. It may make you feel worse, but I was having dinner with a friend of mine and he's a president of a billion dollar company and he's been the president for the last eight years. And I asked him this very question about like, how does he build this relationship with the CEO? And he's like, it's been a roller coaster for the last eight years. You just, I don't talk about it. I've been fired three times only to be rehired the next day. <laughs> and like, there's these peaks and valleys that you have to manage through. He's like, look, there'd be points in time where I didn't speak to the CEO for months on end. I'm like, that is absolutely crazy. How do you get your job done? And he's like, look, the organization feels it when that happens. But it was my job to go back to the table to repair whatever wasn't working and how it works under stressful situations versus when you're actually like succeeding. It's totally different, but the, re- the actual responsibility of managing the relationship was always on him. I don't know if it makes me feel better, but yeah, I think it does. It's like, it's around the role, not the gender. How about you, Brandon? Have you had similar experiences? As a male working with other males, in terms of the relationship, I find I'm very stereotyped, I guess, in this sense, because we don't talk about the relationship mostly. <laughs> this has been my experience. We just kind of do our functions. We ebb and flow around each other organically in a way where I know that he has certain interests and things that he wants to do and things that concern him. And I kind of like weave my way around that. And maybe that's kind of what you're talking about a little bit, Scott, which is I take the responsibility to weave around him not him weaving around me, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? And I'll do it as best I can see it and feel it. Will I sit down and talk with him about it specifically? The answer is probably no or very rarely. But I think it's, again, because of these male side of things of me, I guess, and how we've been brought up where you don't really talk about it overtly so much in terms of the relationship. You just do your job, weave around the person as best you can, and try to make it work in a way that is satisfying to them, essentially. And if they're not satisfied, you can usually see it, sense it, feel it, whatever I guess the case might be. But I guess I would flip this back to you, Scott, just in the way that if you think about putting effort into the relationship, or you're taking responsibility for managing the relationship, for all the CEOs that are out there listening to this podcast, is there anything that you could tell them to help them think through how best to do this, either kind of practical things to consider or experiences that you've had that were revelatory in the sense of the kind of effort type-wise, I guess, of how to make that happen? I mean, I think everything comes back to communication. Relationships where I have worked best with CEOs is we're talking daily. And where it's been most challenging is you get your one-on-one each week. And if they show up, 
great. But if they don't, you can't rely upon it. So everything I think is about communication, even having daily check-ins and talking about like what's going on within the first 15 minutes of the day. I also think sending weekly updates so the CEO knows what you have been working on because they might not be as close to the business and it depends on what the CEO dynamic is. And then CEOs are human beings too. If you can build that relationship outside of work, you build more continuity within the organization. So making sure that you agree to go out to dinner or go out to breakfast or go out for a drink, play a game of pool, go for a hike. I think that that's really important. And that point about hiking, and I think in today's hybrid world, that makes it very hard. But if you look at some of like the great thought leaders, the great CEOs out there, and a lot of the COOs that I've known that have been particularly successful, they go on two-hour walks with their CEOs on a weekly basis where they're just talking about the business, strategy, execution, what's not working. And then they use that to actually organize their thoughts going into their weekly leadership team meeting. So to me, that makes a lot of sense. Like you're building a sense of rapport, but you're also doing it where you're actually socializing and talking about the business. But all that comes back to like one fundamental key factor, which is how do you communicate with your partner, arguably? Going back to it being a marriage, it's like how much space do you have <laughs> for two marriages? I was also thinking about the gender dynamic. I don't know how much of it's gender versus power. Well, I think it is because as women, we tend to have less power. And then as CEOs, we have less power compared to CEOs. So that's why I was curious whether it was a power or a gender or both. But it was interesting the way we react to that. So as a woman, I'm like quite socialized. So what I do is I talk about the relationship. I worry about feelings. I bring out the hard conversations. Brandon just ignores all of it and kind of figures out how he weaves around. <laughs> I think that that's like both of your individual approaches to it. But like the, I think like the commonality between it though is we all understand that as COOs, the ultimate decision maker isn't us. It's the CEO and navigating that, like I think can be really challenging. In our personal relationships, we've got a voice and we all have kids and we're all parents, but it is purely equitable when you think about it from a personal relationship perspective. But no matter how you look at it, the CEO, COO relationship, it's not equitable. There is one person that has ultimate discretion and decision-making of power in that relationship. And I think that that makes it much more complicated to navigate. But I think that's actually a spot on. I think that's part of the reason perhaps why Bethany has her approach and I have mine, which is, it sounds a little bit silly, but I respect the office of the CEO, <laughs> which is they're the ultimate you know arbiter for the company in terms of what's going to happen. And do I have a voice to be heard for sure? You know, is it my place to tell them what to do or we should be having a different relationship? Here's the reason why I don't feel like that's my place in some ways. And maybe that's not the right attitude, but that's the way I've always approached it, I suppose. Question back to you, Scott. In that sense where that CEO is the ultimate arbiter in that way for the company directionally, if you disagree with the CEO or don't believe 
that a particular approach is the right thing to do or you need to say no to that CEO. Is there a way to approach that guidance-wise that you think would be useful for the listeners? So I think it depends on the CEO that you're working with. There's emotive CEOs, there's motivational CEOs, and then there's data-oriented CEOs. And like, look, I always walk into these conversations rightly or wrongly with apprehension. But what I try to do is bring the data with me. And I think if you've got data, it takes the emotion out of the conversation. Hey, look, I know you said this, but here's what the data is showing. And I think that that's leverage that not a lot of people like sufficiently use. So if you're talking, for instance, about the performance of an individual, and we've all been there, the CEO is like, you need to fire this person. <laughs> Nobody agrees with that. You're like, here's the salesperson. They're actually the only person that's hitting quota. Their win-loss ratio is higher than anybody else, and you still want to terminate this person. When you see this, do you still want to make this decision? And I think that that's always helpful. I think it's during the subjective conversations where it's much more difficult. And if it's a subjective decision, you can express your opinion, but it comes back to the same conversation we had earlier, the power dynamic. Ultimately, as the COO, you are part advisor, you are part implementor, but the ultimate decision it's not ultimately yours. You've got an opinion, but the CEO, unfortunately or fortunately, has the final say. That brings me on to another question. This is one that I definitely struggled with personally, so it'd be great to hear what you have to say or your experiences, is not every decision should go to the CEO because that's a massive bottleneck and slows everything down. But important decisions need to or need to be decided. And then so it's not just between like what decisions can a CEO take versus the COO, but it ends up becoming something where everybody wants to know what level of decision making they have. And how have you seen that work well without rolling out a humongous amount of bureaucracy and sign off levels? So the only time I've seen it work well is with second time CEOs, like experienced CEOs, because they have a preordained framework in mind. Like I've seen racy charts. I've seen like the McKinsey method, the Bain method. Some CEOs want to be involved in every single decision. I think one that I've been advocating with other CEOs that I talk to when they ask about this is like the Amazon approach, which I think is like really interesting. And they still use this. Way back in the day, Jeff Bezos categorized decisions into two separate drivers, reversible decisions and non-reversible decisions. And if it was a non-reversible decision, it had to be decided amongst the leadership team. And if they still didn't think that it was a non-reversible decision, it got elevated all the way up to him to make the decision. Non-reversible decisions, depending upon the order within the organization, people can make those decisions and it allowed them to run a lot quicker, a lot leaner because there was a lot less bureaucracy because look, they wanted to encourage innovation, execution, and speed. 
And if you made a bad call, everybody does, you could actually quickly reverse it and move on from that. So yeah, for new CEOs, I think like that decision-making paradigm is really difficult and complex to navigate. But I also think sending those weekly updates about here's what was going on or having those conversations to make sure that the CEO knows about the decisions that you're making certainly helps navigate that. But in the early stage world, I haven't seen like a clear cookie cutter approach to really making and navigating that decision. Have either of you seen it? No, or at least nothing that wouldn't be super bureaucratic and painful. And then it's not going to work because who's going to adhere to it really? Because what I've also seen is maybe the CEO delegates, but then one level down and then the execs don't delegate either. So it's like, how do you actually delegate to your team so that the decisions are being made at the right level? That's where I've gotten burned personally. I take the approach of trust, but validate. And so I try to give my team the discretion to make the decisions because I trust them emphatically. It's just over time, if I feel like I've gotten burned, then I pull back that responsibility and I'm much more involved in the decision-making process. But I believe like you should be pushing decision-making rights to the lowest levels of the organization. Just makes you much more functional and nimble. Totally agree. It just really struggles on the CEO's relationship there. But I've been there too, right? Okay, somebody in your organization makes a bad call. You get burned and you get torched for it, right? Like, how did you make this decision? How did you not know about this decision? What are you doing? How are you managing your team if you didn't know about it? And you're like, I can't possibly know about everything that's going on within the organization. Somebody spent $500 on a tool. Yeah, like, no, I didn't know about it. And I can't possibly know about it because I can't do X, Y, and Z if that's the case. Or like somebody makes a mistake. Yeah, people are, are imperfect. Like they're going to make mistakes. But if we're focused, so focused on perfection, we'll never actually focus on progress. It's difficult. And everybody that I've talked to has had similar frustrations and issues. For sure. And I think in every scale that I've worked for, this question of what the CEO should be deciding is always a bit of a question in some respects, and especially coming from the heritage where that CEO made all the decisions up until a certain point. But at that certain point, it really changes because you bring in experts and specialism and people that know what they're doing, essentially. And to your point, you need to give them full empowerment to make choices within a certain context and to allow that to occur and for that to flourish. And for some CEOs that have done that scale-up journey, they find it difficult to make that transition. But I think you as a CEO coming into the company, you have a bit of a responsibility to work with that CEO to make that changeover happen in some respects. The way that I've always looked at it is that anything that has a cross-organizational impact of consequence that needs to be rolled up to the leadership team to make a decision. And if the leadership team as a totality, as a unit, can't make that call for whatever reason, then that needs to get escalated back up to another group. So whether that's the C-suite members or, in fact, the CEO themselves, that's perfectly fine. Somebody needs to decide, essentially. Generically, I would say it's generally worked for the most part. No, I think that that's a great approach. I could see how it works, but I also think that this is an interesting tangent where you talk about, as a first-time CEO, you bring on all these executives that have all this experience that you should listen to that doesn't always happen, but that also explains why the average tenure of a startup executive is about a year to a year and a half, right? For that very reason. 
like the CEO doesn't always listen to the people. And by the way, sometimes the, the executives that you onboard aren't the right people to bring into the fold. And that makes it even more difficult, especially if you're the COO that was responsible for hiring those people to Bethany's question about like decision-making rights, then it's like, you're so experienced. How did you make this hire? Well, they've been successful everywhere else, but in this environment, they haven't been successful. I could see the look on Bethany's face. She's like, yeah, I've been there. (laughs) (laughs) This really comes down to trust. Because I think that part of this is around, unless you're the co-founder, COO, or you've come in very early, you do need to rapidly build trust with your CEO. And the CEO, for the most part here, talking about founder CEOs, so it is their baby that we are trying to help them grow. How have you built trust quickly? Or are there any lessons learned on how to build trust? Yeah, I'm going to just take one step backwards from even that questions that you're asking during the interview process to figure out, is it a match or not? And I think about this every single day. And I think every COO that's listening to this, that has experienced a wonky relationship, like thinks back, what did I miss during this process? So there are two questions that I have learned one that I ask, one that I would ask in the future is trust given or is it earned? I think that that is honestly, if you can't get a straight answer about that, because it totally changes how you operate. And based on your question, those first 90 days, if you have to earn trust, you're going to operate so much more differently than if it's already given to you and you have the car blanche ability to do that. I think the second part is walk me through how you delegate. Specifically, I want to know what are my roles and responsibilities from day one. Show me the org chart. What are my expectations? What's the job scorecard for me in my role? Because If you do not understand the answer to those two questions, then actually you can't execute to build that trust over the first 90 days because you're flying totally blind. You don't have any orientation. It doesn't matter if you're the world's best operator. The CEO doesn't trust you from the get-go and you have to run every single decision by them. One, it impacts your ability to execute. But two, like you won't know how you have to communicate. Is it daily check-ins? Is it daily write-ups that you have to actually share? And it comes back to comms, especially during the first 90 days. And there's a book, The First 90 Days. I'm not sure if either of you have read it, that talks about literally how to onboard as an executive at an organization. And it's a great read, but I think it really comes back to that. You've got to get your orientation during your interview process as to what to expect. And then based on that, figuring out what's the communication modal that your CEO is expecting and then executing against that once you actually have that framework. I also think like straight up asking the CEO, how do I build trust and respect with you? And I do think that it's a combination of communication, but also like 
being able to get out of the office and like being able to do things that aren't just work related to build that relationship where you can actually trust each other and figure out how to navigate really, really difficult decisions. Early stage companies are a roller coaster filled with stress. It's easy to manage the relationship when things are going well. It is bloody hard to manage it when things are difficult, right? Everybody's feeling the stress of that. That could be during your first 90 days. How do you operate when that's happening? Because I think that that is when you define the relationship between the CEO and the COO. It's not when things are going well. It's when things aren't going well. How do you work together? How do you work through a crisis? That's where I've seen relationships completely and totally fall apart. It divides you or it unites you. And I think after that, the first crisis that you work through, you'll figure out whether or not there's a good working relationship or not. I think you need to build the relationship in the good times and prepare and build that trust so that when the bad times come, you have some reserves. This isn't strictly about CEOs, but I'm just curious, Scott, Brandon, are you trust-given or trust-earned people? So for me, I've gotten really burned by it, but I believe in it. I believe trust is given from the get-go. If I've done a good enough job interviewing people, I don't want to hire people that are robotic. I want people that can go and get it done and require limited supervision. Like I want to know what's going on. Like keep me informed, but go at it, have at it, like go dominate the world and operate really quickly. And if things don't work out now in practice, is that always the case? Am I always operating like that? No, it depends on like the level of the role within the organization. So I'm a little bit of a hypocrite. I'm not going to lie. I think in this respect, I feel like I'm definitely a trust given person. I'm all about moving as fast as humanly possible and hiring people with functional talents that I know they can do the job. And I expect them to fulfill their skill set in some ways. And to your point, the reality is that doesn't always happen. And I think this is where I think I personally get caught out sometimes because I give the trust ASAP. I'm like, let's do this. And then three months later, six months later, I start seeing symptoms or signals that are telling me something's amiss, basically. But I think at least at the outset, it's really trust is given. Let's make this organization happen and do that. It's interesting that you both viewed it in a company or in a business perspective, because I feel like there's lots of things in the world where people are either one side or the other, or, you know, introvert, extrovert. And I think the trust is definitely one of those. And so it, it goes farther than just trust within the organization. But do you trust that the world is a good place or the world is a bad place until it proves that it's a good place? I think it's a bit of an optimist, pessimist view as well. I believe in both paradigms. But I also say, you know, as much as we talk about it from a leadership level, is trust given or is it earned? I also think that you have to earn your direct report. They don't deserve to give you trust. You have to earn the people that report into you. You have to earn their trust. So flip it on its head. When you think about the skills that you have, the skills that your CEO has, these are always different in terms of the matchmaking process. But There's always some setup that makes sense. And then there's really that second question of how you structure yourself to align to that in terms of the line reports and, you know, who you functionally line manage versus those that have a dotted line and so on. I'm just wondering if you can share any experiences with that where it's really created grief for you or being very complicated versus other scenarios, which have been much better for perhaps some special reason. So I'm a big believer that dotted lines do not work. 
I've never seen them work. I've never seen anybody make them work. When you have two leaders that are responsible for making decisions, when they conflict and you haven't communicated, nobody in your organization really understands it. So I haven't seen dotted lines work. I think you have to have direct reporting lines. This is what the CEO is responsible for. This is what the COO is responsible for. And then hopefully like you have the working dynamic where that functionally works. I like to communicate to CEOs. Ultimately, everybody reports into them. So if you want to talk to anybody in my org, great. Just keep me updated as to what the conversation is. But yeah, I don't know if I've ever talked to anybody that where the, the whole dotted line thing has worked. Have you seen that anywhere? Really big organizations. I have, via my husband, seen it work. I think because it just gets to such a large size that things move very slowly. So there's enough time to talk through the conflict because you're working on a five-year plan, literally, rather than our five-year plan of hypothetical. I've never seen it work when it's a small company working quickly. Awesome, Scott. Thank you so much for joining us today. If anybody would like to learn more from you, get in contact with you, what are the best ways for them to follow you? Email is great and a LinkedIn message would be wonderful. Great to have you on today. Just before we wrap, if there's one takeaway for our listeners from our conversation today, what would be the one thing they should remember? The one thing is relationships matter. The way that the CEO and COO relationship and paradigm work, ultimately, the stronger the glue and the cohesion between the the two, the stronger the organization. So focus on that from day one. So thank you for joining us, Scott. And if you enjoy what you're hearing uh, in the operations room, please subscribe or leave us a comment. Or in fact, give us a five-star rating in this case. And we will see you next week.